here and say that our guest for this evening is Jonathan Zapp. You can find information about Jonathan on the web at zapporacle, www.zapporacle.com. He's been a guest, as I mentioned, on the program a couple of times over the last year or two, and it is a pleasure once again to say hello and welcome back into orbit. John, hi. How are you, Mike? It's great to be back on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for coming back on the program. Hey, uh, you know, John, you're a tough one to describe. So instead of me doing a rundown, how about you, please, if you would, for the folks unfamiliar, a little bit about yourself and uh, Jonathan Zapp. Well, uh, people who are familiar with my writings know I use the word mutant a lot. Uh, <laughs> and, <clears throat> uh, and and so those kind of people are notoriously hard to, to capsulize in words. Uh, some people call me a philosopher. A lot of my writings are sort of psychological. I basically followed a, a path that's um, actually also an essay on my website called The Path of the Numinous, where if I am going about my life and I, I see something that's glowing with an uncanny significance, what, what some people call numinosity, then uh, I'm inclined to follow that down the rabbit hole and, and see where it goes, as compared to um, focusing most of my energy on economic survival or on a lot of other things that, that are so easy to um, you know, have dominate your, your awareness. Mm -hmm. And so by following that, that path of the numinous and, and following um, uh, a lot of the weird and quirky things that have happened in my life, and including some shocking paranormal things, following out the implications of those things has kind of created a kind of path for me, and, and some of it's paranormal research, and some of it's a uh, kind of um, psychological look at the collective psyche and evolutionary possibilities and a few other odd subjects. Okay. All right, and uh, you do an interesting thing on the web that's called the Zap Oracle. Yeah, this is something that, that, that I've been working on for um, 30 years, really, and it, it started out uh, almost completely by, by um, accident, actually, or serendipitous accident, I guess. I just started collecting art postcards, and, uh, but they would be images that were numinous to me. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why I would spend 50 cents on that card and not on another one. Right. And I, I lived in New York, and I'd go to, like, you know, the Met and different museums, and they'd have some really amazing images. Mm -hmm. And then, um, for some reason, I decided, because I would put them on the refrigerator with magnets, um, I decided, okay, I'm going to, from now on, just pick four cards once a week and without looking. And what I discovered was that the cards that were picked had a, a hell of a lot to do with the the week that would follow, and the kind of archetypal themes were, were right there. Now, the images that I picked were archetypal images, and that's why they were numinous, and, and the reason why they were numinous are kind of lit up in the outside phenomenal world is because they had a connection to my psyche, and therefore, um, even with this, you know, bag of only, you know, 50 or 100 cards at that point, um, it functioned as an oracle, and so if you think about what an oracle is, it has to be some kind of microcosm. I almost see it as a kind of um, a brain of a sort or a mm. neural network, and the nodes in that network are these archetypal signifiers. Mm. And, and just by having a bag of archetypal signifiers or a collection of that sort, it functions as a kind of organic computer. And, and this is why I'm, I'm, one of the reasons why I'm so glad to have this online is, you know, we... we conventionally think of artificial intelligence as something arising out of hardware. But what if um, the thing that you need to channel a, 
and a disembodied intelligence is a different kind of device, um, a device in which there are archetypal signifiers, which are basically uh, the, the components of a language of, of penetrating and sometimes even mythological talk. And then through the principle of synchronicity, the uh, intelligence can operate through this medium. And uh, that's, that's the idea of um, a Ouija board, though that can be a very diabolical um, portal to open, but, but there is an, uh, th this possibility that intelligence can communicate through things and don't have to arise out of uh, hardware. Hmm. And so, uh, anyway, um, it's gone through several different evolutions. Um, at, at some point, I started adding my own photographs uh, to the Oracle, which was called the Image Oracle for a long time, and it would graduate into larger and larger bags, from like a camera bag to eventually like a duffel bag. And then um, a friend of mine suggested, why don't you put captions on the card, something that I had never thought of for some reason, because I called it the Image Oracle, and, and I started doing that. And then um, it, it grew into, it, it turned into an online oracle at a very strange day. It was um, Halloween two years ago, and the two other two computer wizards that were helping with this just happened to set up a conference call. It wasn't like they didn't intend it to be Halloween. And it was a very intense evening because my mom was going in for open-heart surgery the very mm. next morning. Mm. And so it was kind of like even in the birth of the oracle, you saw that presence of like the weird and the uncanny, the birth of it is an online entity, and I know astrolog astrologers uh, will do charts for a country or an organization based on the, on the day that um, it was born, uh, like July 4th, 1776. Right, right. These are significant things that people don't really, in many cases, account. Right, and, and you know, they've, they've come up with some really um, extraordinary things about what it says about the psychology and the process of a country and, and so forth, and, and I guess the finest example of this type of uh, uh, inquiry is uh, Russell Tarnas's almost magisterial book, Cosmos and Psyche, mm, yeah. uh, where he gets, gets into this and gets quite specific after a certain point, but I really think the first 70 pages of that book are probably among the most important ever written. Mm. Uh, the rest of it, I'm not as isn't as numinous for me. But those that introduction is something everybody should really make a point of reading. Yeah, that's Richard Tarnas, and it's called Cosmos and Psyche. And he wrote he wrote uh, Passion of the Western Mind. Right, right. Same Another guy. extraordinary book. Extraordinary book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, anyway, so so here's the the uh, beginning of it um, as an online entity on uh, Halloween uh, with this big medical transition in my personal family and so forth happening and uh, it, it really seems to uh, work work for me uh, for example we just recently created the ability to store your readings and then um, uh, we were able to also um, um, I have a, a friend Mathiel who writes the, the code uh, for the Oracle so he's the, the computer wizard behind it at this point and and finally, you pulled together this thing idea I had called Theme Tracker, where now all the cards are sorted into 46 archetypal themes. Mm -hmm. And each card is individually rated according to its relationship to these themes. And now, as you have a free membership which stores your readings, then Theme Tracker analyzes the readings for these archetypal themes and shows you a bar graph with up to 46 bars showing which theme is most um, prominent for you. So the first time I got to try it uh, for myself, the pr most prominent theme by far was dreaming. 
And in the few days before I did that, uh, what was happening was, was dreaming. Um, I was sleeping much longer than usual. I was having very disturbing dreams that were kind of spilling out into the day. So that seemed quite, quite accurate. And then next, um, after a few days had gone by, we, we, were, we tried out for the first time something called Collective Theme Tracker, which is still not publicly available yet, but it, it takes anonymous information on all the card picks from all the users, some of which are in different countries and so forth, mm-hmm. and um, it does the same thing for them. So it's sort of showing what are the themes most pronounced in the collective. And the theme that was most pronounced for the collective, and this was happening sometime in, in December, just as we were moving into the holidays and all of that kind of thing, um, was money, right, livelihood. Mm-hmm. And that seemed very accurate because people are like, we're going deeper into credit card debt, buying all their Christmas stuff. And we were hearing, you know, ever more alarming stories about the subprime lending meltdown mm-hmm. and about the fall of the dollar and so forth. Which we're still in the middle of that. Well, I'm probably going on too long about the Oracle, but basically I think the thing is for people to try it out. And um, I have a, a show-me attitude with all these things. I don't mean, <laughs> yeah, start anything with it as a complete skeptic and just, um, you know, if, if it works for you, if it, if it jives with your inner true sense, then go with it, just like with any material that, that comes up. And if it doesn't, then put it aside. Yeah, I agree fully. And and it's fun in the meantime because it is very cool. There's the, you know, there's an imagery side of it, and you've chosen some very interesting images for your uh, for the cards, I guess. And and then the writing associated with it. I think I think in my experience with your oracle, frankly, is that regardless of what comes up, the topics that are brought up, you know, within each card are worthy of thought. And discussion, you know what I mean. They bring up interesting ideas, regardless of whether you want to think that that's the divining part of your life at that point or not. You know, I mean, it may be, but it's still worthy of uh, of reading. I think actually. Well, thank you, and that, that is today. a totally valid way to do it as well. It's just to take it as a daily meditation too. Yeah, I did it today, just uh, you know, to go back and familiarize myself with it. And, and you've changed it since the last time I was there, like you mentioned. And it's cool that you can that you can. Uh, track now the historical uh, you know your, the times that you've done it in the past of course because you can look for patterns or whatever I was telling my friend uh, earlier tonight we were talking about the I Ching somebody asked me at the bar before I came down here what the show was about and I said oh well you know Jonathan Zapp blah 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 and we're talking a little bit about this that and the other thing but there's an oracle that he works with and oracle and then we talked about the I Ching a little bit and I told this person that uh, when I do the I Ching, and I actually thought, and I, I want to mention this to you because I want to see what you make of it, actually, because it came to me for the first time tonight. But when I do my I Ching readings, every time I do one, uh, I write in the uh, on the page of the hexagrams that I that you know that come up in that particular throwing of the coins or whatever, and I write the date of that particular reading and and maybe what was on my mind or or what if I had a particular question that I had formulated you know to present to the I Ching that I was looking for a solution for or something like that right sure and so I write it down in the column of the book so I know that if I if I've been there before and I can see oh well you know I got this hexagram you know a month ago or I got it a year ago or I never got it before or whatever but I write it down in right, right there and then I thought about how 
hexagrams that I actually have gotten in the past, I see my marks in the column of the book, and I see that I have that I have gotten this hexagram before at a date some sometime in the you know in the past. But it feels to me that when I read it this time, that it's changed, that the book itself has actually changed, that the story itself has actually changed, that the hexagram and the description that it's telling me about my life has literally changed. And and then I think that it's called the book of changes, you know. Right. And I I have this weird sense that the thing is actually like that, that it's almost alive and that the hexagrams can actually change words and things like that, as strange as that might sound. But at any rate, your oracle is in a weird way similar to that. And I, I recognize that you have 46 themes. And that, that, that's the reverse of the 64 themes that are included in the I Ching hexagram series. Well, I didn't even notice that. Oh, I just noticed it just now when you sent it to me. And I thought, I wonder if there was a method behind that. Uh, not consciously, but a lot of things seem to happen kind of uh, serendipitously. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also like the, the thing that you're doing with your I Ching because, for one thing, it can show you um, if there are any patterns, like if one hexagram uh, keeps uh, coming up again and again. Right, right. Um, but, you know, the E in I Ching, because Ching just means book, like Tao I Ching, mm -hmm. uh, but the E means lizard, and it's believed that the lizard they had in mind was the chameleon. Mm. Which would be an animal that that, that changes, yes. and uh, the but the thing you mentioned about how the words seem to change, and of course they they, they do because you're in a different place, and so like that message is um, creating a unique compound with like the particular state you're in, and there are different levels of implication of meaning. Mm -hmm. But but that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why it's um, as as much as people are helped by some of the plain English I Ching's, which I also recommend using that also in your toolbox, or like the first one to reach for, should probably be the Wilhelm Baines each That's the one that I use, yeah. yeah. Exactly, and, yeah. and, and that, that's helping you have that experience of it seeming different each time because of the use of metaphor. Mm -hmm. And you have Jung's involvement, which is so critical, I think. Yeah, I mean, his presence is almost, is almost standing right beside you because he was, um, didn't just write the introduction, he was like the spiritual mentor for Wilhelm, Wilhelm uh, who, who wrote the... Uh, translation and mm -hmm. did all the work to bring this I Ching into the Western world. The only right. I Chings that existed before him were, were really lame, and, and, but often reprinted, <laughs> be, the buyer beware. Right, right. You know, as all, leg as version. all authentic things. You know? he, this guy was an old British sinologist who thought the I Ching was just a bunch of total like pagan superstitious nonsense, and so, but he just set about the exercise of translating it, and that's the most commonly reprinted I Ching. Mm. Um, but because of Wilhelm Baines has that metaphor, you can see more levels in it, like listening to a, um, a Yes song or a good Led Zeppelin song. There are so many metaphors that you could apply to anything at different times of your life. Yeah, you hear the thing over and over again, yeah. Right, so the more subtle language like that has that more of that changeling aspect. It has like It's like looking into a, a finely polished piece of Labradorite where depending on how you hold it, it flashes back certain colors and yeah. so forth. So. Well, it's a fascinating thing, and... and for anybody who just wants a taste of, you know, the strange, go learn the I Ching, get the book that uh, Jonathan and I are talking about. I think it's probably the best idea. Learn a little bit about it and throw those coins a few times over, over the course of X number of days or months. And my guess is that you will probably come back shaking your head because, you know, I'm a 
mathematician with a with, with, you know with a background in the physical sciences and you know I speak German I'm all about engineering and physics and mathematics and all this stuff and uh, but I somehow got in touch with this other side as well and when I first experienced the I Ching I was blown away and I continue I mean it's something that I continue to use over many many years and I'm not a person that reads the horoscopes you know in the back of the New York Daily Tribune or whatever I mean I'm, I'm not much for hocus-pocus, but the I Ching has been so profound and so freakishly accurate with regard to situations in my life and uh, questions that I may have put forth that I, 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 I have to accept the fact that even though I don't understand it as a rationalist, that something very significant is going on there. Yeah, and you're, you, the I Ching is, is an ideal oracle for somebody like you. It, it works particularly well for people with a scientific background or with strong logical minds. Um, one, one Jungian, I think, made a very interesting observation that the, the I Ching, sort of um, seeing alongside the, the, the Tarot is like the yin and yang of oracles, mm -hmm. that the I Ching would be the yang. It would be the, it has a masculine character mm -hmm. um, because it approaches the psyche often with like, you know, the... the Penetrating precision of a Asian swordmaster, and and put something right in your face and in very clear language. Quite often, other times it can have an, an oriental obliqueness, and 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 it could be, you know, taken many different ways and very general. But at other times it will cut right to the exact thing that's going on. When I can give you know, oh man, uh, jaw-dropping examples, but probably you can too. Mm -hmm. and, and it can it can be comforting or it can be devastating. I mean, oh, absolutely. It, it, it slaps you upside your head, and that's the thing to, to tell people, warn people about any good oracle is uh, angel cards can't be a good oracle. You have to represent the shadow side. That's the other thing that it takes. Is in addition to archetypal signifiers, you need to get a, um, a good distribution of archetypes, which must include light and dark. Otherwise, you have a, you know, a brain that's missing a hemisphere, and it's not going to act as an intelligent entity without that, because that must be represented. Amazing. All right, well, uh, one last thing about the oracle. When people do it, uh, if they want to do it just off the cuff, they can do that anytime they go to the website. But if they'd like to keep track and stuff, they can actually uh, get an account, so to speak. I mean, it doesn't cost anything, but they can register, basically, and then use this tracker that you're talking about, right? Yeah, we've made it the, the interface as, as straightforward as possible. You, you just you know sign up for membership. It's really clear how to do it. Uh, it's anonymous, and and then but the one thing to point out um, is that in user settings, put your name in there and press save, and that way the oracle will hereafter um, forever refer to you by your name, which uh -huh. is kind of cool. And right. The archetypal force most ascendant in Mike rather yeah. than the querent. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, if you. If you use the oracle without signing in, it calls you or refers to the questionnaire as the querent. Right. Okay. All right, and there are ten cards. Is there any particular reason why you have ten in the series? Um, well, there are four types of readings. And, and the, the first one, you probably saw the first one, the general life reading, which is ten, but some of the others are like nine or eleven. Mm -hmm. There's a relation, you can do a relationship reading, an issue choice problem reading, or a money right livelihood right, reading right, right. as well. And, um, but there are 440 cards right now, and new ones being created all the time. So that's another thing about this oracle is that it has far more of those items. And, and each each time I add one, it's sort of like adding another neuron to a brain. It feels like now it can give with greater precision, synchronistically match up with what's going on in someone. 
because there are just more states represented, the more cards that are added. Yeah, and the imagery is a big part of it, too. You know, we, we, we work mentally off of imagery. Well, that, that's right, and, and that's part of something else we might talk about later tonight, about um, the importance of, of firing up both hemispheres and of um, going with the, the, the curve of evolution, which is toward higher and higher visual processing and, 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 and some other strain, visual communication. And so it's very important that there be images as well as text. And a lot of the images arose out of synchronicities. Uh, that's kind of the way I take pictures mostly is I'm, I just have a camera with me all the time. And then there are those numinous moments when there's some kind of like uncanny way in which visual elements came together. And it, it can sometimes really be a synchronicity. And sometimes we'll even relate to the theme that I'm thinking about. And so those are the kind of pictures that then become oracle cards. All right, well, it's cool stuff, and uh, the cards are a big part of it, and it's interesting the way that you come across them as well. The, um, and some of them, again, you touch on the dark side for sure. I mean, some of them are creepy as all get out, you know, and some of them are not. Yep, try and get the whole spectrum in there. <laughs> all right. And, you know, if anybody notices anything missing, this is a good thing uh, before I'm, well, I'm sort of congratulating myself on this whole process. <laughs> Um, I, because my, my personality is kind of extreme in some directions, there, there could be whole states of mind that I'm, I'm not representing there. And if anybody in the audience or using the Oracle um, wants to give me feedback, that would be a great thing to get feedback on. All right, and it's easy to, get a, uh, easy to get a hold of you through the website, right? Yes, my email's right there. All right, at zaporacle.com. All right, you can link over there from my site at mikehagan.com as well. And uh, Jonathan, we're just about top of the hour. Let's take a little break, okay? Excellent. All right, everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guest is Jonathan Zapp. You can find information, as we just mentioned, on the web at www.zapporacle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, zapporacle.com. And you can link over there from my site from here on out. Of course, there are a couple programs in the archives that Jonathan and I have done over the last 18 months or so, and I encourage you, if you're enjoying what you're hearing tonight, to... Uh, Take you a listen to those after the fact tonight. Maybe you download those and uh, listen to them sometime in the next week or two or whenever you like, okay? All right. We will now take a breather and play a song from my new friends, this band called Elsinore. And they are from Champaign, Illinois. And they're writing good music and uh, performing it all around this part of the country. And I'd like to help them out a little bit. So we're going to play some more right now. This song is called Cannonballs. Once again, Elsinore from their CD called Nothing for Design. You're hearing it here on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. We'll be back with Jonathan Zapp in just a few minutes.
Elsinore. Once again, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to it here on Radio Orbit. That's a song called Cannonballs. And if you want to find information about this band, who's uh, playing some nice music for you all tonight, you can check them out on the web at my website, actually, MikeHagan.com. Just click over to the music archives, or you'll see a link to them right over there on the front page, actually, if you just scroll down. But they have the MySpace thing and all that, and it's uh, wonderful stuff. So thanks to the band for getting it together and for sharing it with us, okay? We'll hear some more from Elsinore as we go into the uh, into the program tonight, okay? All right, meanwhile, Jonathan Zapp sticking around with us on the line here from Boulder, Colorado. And uh, thank you, John. Right. Glad to be back. Yeah, what's uh, happening there in Boulder? I wanted to ask you before we get too deeply into this stuff, and we already have, but that's okay, I want to talk a little bit about 2007 and what you sort of thought about the year in hindsight. You're a guy who is sort of an attention-paying observer, in my opinion, and I'd like to know what you think. Yeah, of course, we can talk about you know, what awaits forward into 2008 and beyond as we go into the program, but maybe first some thoughts about the last uh, year or so. What do you think is going on? Well, uh, uh, you can definitely feel shifts in the zeitgeist. Uh, Like right now, even though my home looks the same, I can feel in Boulder, uh, the atmosphere of Boulder feels very different because right now it's missing about 25 or 30,000 kids. Universities out. And you can actually feel a drop in the psychic energy field. You know, that... that, um, Same thing here. We're in Columbia, Missouri. Same thing here. University of Missouri is here, and... And the the town of Columbia is a little bit smaller, I guess, than Boulder uh, without the students. But there's thirty thirty five thousand students here, or whatever. And when they boogie, it definitely changes the whole scene. No question. Right, and and it's it's of incredible value to be tuned into and just be asking yourself and other people like, what what is the shift in the zeitgeist? Because this is something we're all feeling. Like you know, we're feeling it in the pit of our gut. We're feeling feeling it in every kind of way. Um, you know what what's what's happening out there in, in the force and the collective um, and that field around you and and of course the incredible challenge is and it's a challenge that we can never fully um, master is how to disentangle our own psyche and our own process and the changes in feeling that we're getting from that from what's happening outside ourselves and but to the best of my ability um, I can feel uh, a distinct uptick in anxiety for the collective, mm. especially in, in recent months. And I can, I can feel it pretty distinctly because things are going very well for me personally at this phase. It doesn't feel like it's completely my anxiety, like on a material level, things are functioning on a nice even keel for me. Mm-hmm. But I can really feel like around the whole issue of money and debt and things like that and anxiety about the future, uh, the sense um, that people are feeling like they've been had. Hmm. And also um, a very shocking and kind of uh, uh, horrifying um, a medicine trip that happened to me last summer also kind of reverberates with things going on in the collective. You wrote um, about that, I think, didn't you? Right. It's something on my website called uh, Salvia Blue Moon, Shred to Black, Salvia Yeah, Blue that was a creepy, creepy thing that you wrote. Yeah, and with life-changing consequences. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, and 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 that's something we, we should have mentioned about the oracle that you know, or, or with any of this kind of material, that it's it's best for people with a strong stomach and who are willing to 
um, have their equilibrium disturbed. Yeah, you're not always going to get the comforting uh, pat on the back. Exactly. I mean, you don't enter the unconscious expecting it to be all crystals and dolphins and things like that. And uh, <clears throat> well, there's a problem with that, right? I mean, I mean, you, you actually talk, maybe this is a time to talk about it a little bit. We can talk. I certainly and, and make sure that you don't let me forget. I want to talk about the the visual logo stuff. I mean, I think that sure. is so big because I'm very, very interested in that myself. But because you bring this up, I want to talk about paradoxicalism. Okay, I want to sure. talk about this. You know, you know the, the problem that the new age has with everything being lovey-dovey wonder. Yeah, and it, it's something that that was really inspired by a, um, a very particular personal event, in that I was um, happened to be traveling with with somebody who's uh, um, I thought had a great uh, commitment to consciousness, and um, <clears throat> there were a lot of other things going on at the same time. But we were traveling to places like Santa Fe and. and and so forth, doing some work for a nonprofit, and um, this person seemed to have tremendous discipline to write journals and to explore all kinds of things about himself. Uh, this is a young guy from San Miguel de Allende, Mexico, mm-hmm. and um, but I discovered that in engaging in the kind of like mentoring Socratic dialogue that like you know is my natural function in life quite quite often uh, that we hit an absolute dead end. Because despite all the wonderful qualities uh, this person had, it turned out that they were an absolutist in an altogether rigid way. And they were a New Age absolutist. And and, uh, they believed in you create your own reality so absolutely. And you hear this amongst New Age people, you know, all the time, that he actually, his plan for financial independence was to just manifest money right into his checking account. And although that sounds really absurd and ridiculous and spoiled, he was, in so many other ways, a very mature and, and, and wise and shrewd and, you know, intuitive person, very well grounded in some ways, even though that sounds remarkably opposite to that. And actually, it turned out that his family was very influenced by channeled entities. And this is a subject that I had written about very critically not too long before uh, this person sort of re entered my, my life. And, uh, That's the parasitism about, that you've written about. Um, yeah, right. exactly. I, well, I wrote something called um, um, The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, and that's actually mm-hmm. the title of a book by British paranormal investigator Joe Fisher. And, yeah, um, The Hungry Ghost. channeling phenomenon. That's one of your cards, The Hungry Ghost. Right. I've actually drawn that one before. Oh, you have? Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it is kind of a creepy con- concept, and just in a, a very quick thumbnail, uh, what Joe Fisher discovered basically, and it's documented brilliantly in the book, is that he found that they were channeling real entities. At least there was something distinctly paranormal going on in that these voices were able to know things that that could not be known through ordinary means. Mm -hmm. And, um, however, he discovered that they were not who they claimed to be. And he would actually research, because, like, one of them would have, like, very particular information about his life as an RAF pilot and knew obscure things that only members of that same platoon or, or um, platoon is the wrong word, but core of, mm-hmm. you know, RAF pilots would know, um, not even written down anywhere in, in, in a lot of cases, but, but yet the I- actual identity was, was falsified somehow. And there would be all these kind of manipulative things that they were doing and actually ultimately may have even cost him his life, it seems. Um, and, but... It, we're going off on a lot of tangents, but relating it back to the, this young person, his family was 
really dominated by the, this kind of material, where the father, who is a psychologist, uh, was um, so influenced by a particular entity and, and all his channeled tapes and so forth, and he would actually go there with his some of his family members, and, and including the one that I would relate to, um, and go to the seminars and have individual sessions. And this was where a lot of this new religion had come from. And a lot of it really uh, was sort of half-baked. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, the relating it back to dynamic paradoxicalism, that kind of grew out of um, the realizing that almost everybody um, is a fundamentalist. And they don't have to be religious. It could be the um, my parents' generation who were, um, you know, World War II generation, New York Jewish intellectuals who were... Uh, very interested in socialism and communism, and they were scientifically and rationally inclined, but that was their religion. And, and, and that could become a fundamentalism for a while, and sure. its own image of salvation and its own jargon and, and so forth. And so um, the alternative to absolutisms and fundamentalisms is, um, um, well, one, one alternative is dynamic paradoxicalism, which basically uh, states that every truth is in some kind of paradox relationship with an opposing truth. And uh, where you need to be in relationship to them is, is not stuck just on one side or the other, but in a dynamically sliding relationship. And, and one position is to be in the transcendent place where you unify the opposites, but that's not the only place to be. Um, you know, even though it seems like the highest, because sometimes you might need to be more on one pole or more on the other pole. And so, for example, an example of one of these paradox pairs is you create your own reality, and outside reality creates you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there are many cases where you do create your own reality. Um, and, uh, like, for example, you, you, uh, you know, anytime you move an object, um, anytime you, uh, mm-hmm. your, your thoughts and Emotions affect a relationship. Right, every time um, you speak a word. Right, in all kinds of ways we, we affect our, uh, our re- reality, but then especially our inner reality, but, but there's a limit to that. It's in a paradox pair with another uh, outside reality forming um, set of parameters, like the fact that your mind booted up in a language, mm-hmm. um, let's say English, and you didn't invent that language, you didn't create that reality, um, and yet it conditions your perception of time and of subject and object and of all kinds of very basic things. And, and you're also in a, an ocean of other monkeys that are creating their own reality too. Yeah, exactly, and one of those realities is called history. Huh. And, and that can be a very <laughs> major factor in your life, you know, and New Age absolutisms aside, you know, and that's mm-hmm. why... Stephen Dedalus, the James Joyce character, said, you know, history is the nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. Right. And so we, we don't notice um, any sufficiently uh, positive thinking, empowered New Age person who believes in you create your own reality, creating a world without pollution that they can share with the rest of us. We don't notice this um, effect of people creating their own reality, say, creating um, erratic things in the Earth's orbit. So there seem to be other things outside of our individual control. That's part of what we signed on for in this incarnation. You're not omnipotent. Um, You don't control every aspect of reality, and that's part of the reality that we live in. And we see there are things with huge temporal momentum behind them, like the seasons or mass movements. 
and you may have some influence, but um, you know the butterfly effect is mm. not an omnipotent effect. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Joyce, and he actually has. Uh, I always mention these people that have been significant in my life when they have anniversaries and stuff, and I think on the 13th of January is when he when he p passed in like 1941. But he wrote, you know, you, I think about Finnegan's Wake, which is like a psychedelic experience. Just reading the book, if you can figure out the language. Uh, the, uh, but the whole thing reads sort of like what you're talking about. It's completely unpredictable, and uh, the butterfly effect is essentially what runs the show, not what is the, uh, you know, the the, the sort of uh, the, the underdog. Yeah, I mean, and that that's why it's a dynamic relationship. So, for example. In the life of a highly individual person with a strong commitment to consciousness, the you create your own reality principle, especially if they're living in relatively affluent times with some leisure time and so forth and they're not having a major health crisis. You know, I mean, I'm not saying any of these factors would rule out this. I'm just saying this would make it a more fertile ground for this. Right, right. You have a more synchronistic life where, where you're following one strange occurrence after another and all these kind of things are happening, and that's mostly what my life is like. It's more on that side. However, I know that there are other zones of time where uh, I'm stuck in some bureaucracy and, and, or something like that, or, or there's a mechanical process, like when the computer breaks down, and now I'm much more in the realm of mechanical resistance and where um, outside factors have to be taken into account, like what's happening with the economy, what's happening with the weather out there. Oh, it's snowing. I'll, I'll wear a coat. I won't just try and create my own reality and that it's August outside and that kind of thing. So <laughs> right, there's right. just a reality testing factor that can be lacking sometimes uh, in, in the New Age. And it kind of turns just a little bit too and said New Agers are willing to try anything so long as it didn't work. But to be fair, I have another friend, Ron Lampe, who really has written the definitive book on the New Age, and, and, and which was actually a term that was coined by Carl Jung, and uh, that there really are many, many positive things there, even though it's easy to mock a lot of it. And, and just to yeah, give you an example... Yeah, yeah, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater sort of thing. Right, which, which would be very easy for me to do because I have kind of grew up in that sarcastic, hypercritical tradition. You know, it's very easy to, to start mocking people that you think are unconscious. But, uh -huh. but a kind of humbling um, contrary example... Um, Relating it to even some of the, the cheesier aspects of the New Age, I was once in some California coast town, um, and um, there were some. I went into like a New Age shop with like crystals and stuff like that, and just walking around and seeing what was going on. And there were two uh, rather overweight women, and, and who were just like pretty much like your worst stereotype of a New Age person, or like talking about their crystals as if they were like their pets and oh I think she wants me to get her this velvet cushion and you know <laughs> I mean just the silliest kind of stuff that would be so easy for me to mock or any of us <laughs> and then I walked out of that shop and I saw that there were uh, women and um, men you know basically the same age the same generation as those people and these were, were RV people who were like uh, wearing you know stretch fit pants and like were that whole kind of stereotype, and I could see that this whole type of person was far deader and more mechanical than, than those New Age women. Those New Age women who came from a very similar you know, social milieu or something um, were far more alive. They were kind of like in a childlike state, 
mm. a lunar state of like discovering fun or discovering magic for the first time. And even though that might be uh, seem cheesy to me, comparatively speaking, it was actually a major step forward and like a you know a reinterest in a magical child and magic and so forth and mm-hmm. a thing of value. I want to ask your opinion about the word magic. I've been doing this sort of lately with guests. I had this guy, uh, one of my favorite people, his name is Paul Laffley. He was on the air with me last week for the New Year's show. But just off the cuff, I said to him, Paul, what's your opinion on magic? Or what, do you, you know, what are your thoughts on magic? And I said, and, and, and please first define it. And he said, right off the cuff, he said, well, magic is a non-rational method of engineering. <laughs> I said, that's wonderful. That's amazing. And uh, so it's what I want to ask you, too. Uh, what do you think about the term magic? And then you have to define it because some people say, well, it's just, you know, sleight of hand, fooling people, deception. But then there are others who say, well, the magic is, like Paul says, you know, an actual way of doing things, but just not the normal way of doing it. Absolutely. Um, I've, been, I've been writing about that recently. And... Um, but I'll tell you that there's no definition I could possibly come up with that will be the equal of Aleister Crowley's, which I've just called up in front of me right now. And uh, it has a jewel-like precision. And what he wrote is, Magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Mm-hmm. And, and so, therefore, every act is a magical act. You, you are creating magic every moment. Right. Um, right. And that, that is the... the part of the you create your own reality thing again lift an object through your will yeah exactly and we haven't we haven't really fully explained at all how a human will interacts with the body and with nerves and muscles to yeah, make all that even, happen yeah nobody even get it's 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 what what did einstein say spooky at uh, spooky action at a distance i mean it literally is you know that sort of thing uh, the, the action at a distance that everyone is so freaked out about Absolutely, and you know the, another thing about um, magic is everything is magic, but there's there's sort of better and worse magic. Mm. And it's the, my uh, friend Rob Brezhny, the free will astrology sure, guy, sure. Um, has a phrase uh, that I absolutely fell in love with, and just two words. And and by the way, I, I, I want to say remind me to say something about find the others, the, mm. the, the motto of your website. Yeah. Uh, later. Okay. But. Um, Tragic magic. Okay, so you know George W. Bush. You know all these—they're all weaving magic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but uh, some magic is is better than others, and, and some uh, just is incompetent and, and doesn't um, isn't efficient. And so I'll just read you his second postulate on magic, and that's the only other thing from Crowley I'll read. Any required change may be affected by the application of the proper kind and degree of force in the proper manner, through the proper medium, mm. to the proper object. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, um, that basically covers every instance of, of magic. So there are ways in which you can more efficiently and potently create your own reality and others that are likely to defeat you. So if you focus your will and your ability to create change on especially changing yourself, mm-hmm. that's always going to be effective and get right to the core of what's going on. Whereas if you try and change another person, mm-hmm. if you try and change um, things that are further away, that can be important to do, uh, 
uh, some, in some cases. But changing yourself, um, that's uh, an intention that is likely to get very richly rewarded. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's by changing yourself that you change everything else. That's right. Even if I'm a martial artist being attacked by multiple assailants, for example, um, well, my job is to control my body efficiently. And in doing that, I can have my maximum effect on the outer world. Yeah, I mean, you always go inward. Exactly, and so that's a, that's a place of power, and so that's a place um, where, where um, you're going to do your magic most potently. And then the other thing, intuition that I have about magic, and I wrote uh, something on uh, the website, it's called Magic with Tears, I think, or um, just to kind of uh, play on the Aleister Crowley book, Magic Without Tears. But... Uh, What I believe is that rather than using an inherited ritual or system, that what's actually the most powerful is the ritual uh, that you very consciously create through your unique individuality Mm -hmm. in the moment. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And that's going to be the most intended. And so all the traditional stuff and all that kind of stuff, instead of inheriting a lot of baggage, now for other people, they prefer the traditional approach and they prefer to, to... enter something that has this legacy or um, ancestors attached to it or whatever. I've personally preferred kind of like my own timelines. You can learn from the other ways, I think, in my opinion. In other words, it's good to see what people have done before you in order to do the sorts of things that you're trying to do. But I think maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe part of what you're trying to say is that we have to make sure that we add our own individual unique flair to anything that we do, regardless of whether it's the repetition of a ages-old prayer or whether it's the building of our own sort of ritual. Well, and I, but I think there's, in addition to that, uh, I think that's absolutely true, but in addition to that, this is also a particular time mm. to try new stuff. Huh. That's like a theme, because if something that doesn't work, um, and, and you try it again, it still doesn't work, and it still doesn't work, um, and it looks like things are getting worse, it's time to try something new. Mm-hmm. And that's like the theme of the presidential campaign that seems to be working is change. Mm-hmm. So we are at a time where we're realizing old ways aren't working. We have new problems in what seem like unprecedented situations because of technology mm-hmm. and so forth, right. and therefore it is time to try new things. And another major theme is hybridization of seemingly dissonant elements, the time for East to meet West, Mm -hmm. the time for uh, new technologies to meet old tribal ways and this kind of thing. So the hybridization and the unique um, experiments, these seem to be very indicated for this time. Okay. All right, one more thing about magic, the relationship between words and magic, in other words, language and, and... In other words, magicians have always said, well, if you speak the right words, and Crowley sort of gets at it there. He says if you, he sort of intimates it, but essentially he's saying if you say the right thing to the right person or the right entity, well, then you get your trick. Well, and this would be a good segue into some of the other stuff we were going to talk about because he says, you know, using the right force on the right medium. Right, right. Okay, so, well, one medium is is words. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there are other media that we'll, we'll talk about that, that may be even more powerful. But, mm. but let's not underestimate the power of words. And 
the magic, I mean, they, you know, the magical traditions that said to know the name of something is to have power over it, because the word is not merely the word, it's also a thought form, it's also a realization, it's also a, has an aspect of self-awareness and of a new vision and so forth um, are all uh, connected to it. And so if we take, for example, three words that I took off of your website, find the others, just three words without even a whole lot of syllables between them, and there are huge levels of information being conveyed here. Well, first of all, it's saying that the the, uh, recipient is feeling in a state of alienation, is not already part of a community that's completely satisfying, is in some sort of state um, of um, dissatisfaction with the matrix, and and is therefore seeking companions, fellow mutants, other cognitive dissidents, and it is also um, inflected in a couple of different ways. So in one way, it's, it's kind of like an arrow pointing toward the content of the website and saying, find the others, you know, as if, you know, here's a sign, here they are. Um, but it's also uh, sort of a magical command or evocation, mm-hmm. find the others. Right, it's actually a command as far as verbiage goes, yes. Right, so here are just three words, and yet uh, look at all of what they communicate. Yeah, it's amazing you mention it because over the, over the years since I've begun to use that, I've thought about the phrase much more myself, and, and I certainly see what you're saying because today I could describe all kinds of things that find the others means to me, whereas four years ago when I started the thing, I, I, I didn't have that, uh, that same vision of it, you know what I mean? Exactly, and that, that's the way in which something that you create, a cultural meme, a cultural object of some kind, can be a kind of chameleon. Um, you, it's also being channeled through you, and things will happen that you can't anticipate. Just like when I create the Oracle, mm. no matter how aware I might be of um, creating a card, I can't anticipate, nor would I want to, um, all the infinitely different ways in which different users will get different readings based on different unique contexts. Right, right. None of that is anything I can anticipate or pre-structure. Well, you know what's so weird, too, about it is that, you know, I mentioned Alfred North Whitehead before, and of course this, this is the guy that originally began using the word novelty, which Terrence grabbed onto. Well, Tim Leary is the guy that originally said find the others in a completely different context that I sort of ch- choose to use it, you know. But uh, m- so much of this stuff comes from the others that have gone before us and have, you know, sort of laid these tracks for us. And this really is a, is a key theme. It's it's a very numinous. In, in my life, uh, the analogy I sometimes use is, or the metaphor, is uh, the embers scattered in the forest um, may go out, um, but if gathered together, create a blaze, the radiance of which is felt in the four corners of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a, a theme of the time, is that this is something we have a moral obligation and, uh, and our soul to be fulfilled. Um, requires this. Uh, there's a card I wrote recently called Finding Your Tribe. Um, it's something that needs to happen. We need to get people who are cognitive dissonance, who are mutants, um, together in, a, in a, uh, some sort of community because that's very synergistic mm-hmm. and powerful things happen. And the collective zeitgeist, other people are the ultimate drug, is a saying that mm-hmm. I have. I mean, they're going to affect your energy. And, and we now know that, um, and it can demonstrate it in many different 
scientifically objective ways. We even know now that, that we're filled with mirror neurons whose only purpose is to mirror the state of another person near you. That's how deeply uh, social we are. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that, that's a, you, if you want to um, create metamorphosis, you need to gather uh, those metamorphizing people together because otherwise their energy can be dissipated sometimes by being in an atmosphere of powerful even dis- dissipation mm-hmm. or depression or whatever. Yeah, again, the, the, the embers in the forest metaphor, yeah. Right, and now relating it back to um, the theme of the, the media and what medium, so you communicated all of that with just three words, and it's incredibly efficient, and it, it's low-tech, and, and you, know, you don't need much to, to put those words together, and I'm, I'm a writer, I'm an English teacher, I'm, I'm all for that. But um, Philo Judeus, who is a, um, a Jewish philosopher who is basically a contemporary of Christ, and, and Terence, I'm grateful to Terence for, for pointing this out, said something really interesting. He said that uh, we would really have reached sort of like like Teilhard de Chardin's Omega Point or that evolutionary event horizon when the Logos was beheld instead of heard. Okay, and meaning like the voice of God or we could just expand that to be like the voice of truth or vision is beheld instead of heard. So for example, in the not too distant future, maybe I would put on my VR glasses and, and go to Mike's website and now what happens is I don't see any text but I'm entering a forest <laughs> and um, at the edges of my vision I see uh, you know a figure step out from behind a tree and then kind of disappear and the figure is interesting and has large kind of luminous somewhat psychic looking eyes um, and I see a variety of these different figures, and some are dressed in contemporary clothing and so forth, and they're all like at the edges of the forest and so forth. And that's another communication of um, find the others. Hmm. But all it's right. done all visually. All right, look, this is a great little uh, little segue, I think, and a good place to take a break, but I want to come back and talk more about visual communication and visual language and uh, how we might communicate better with each other through these th- these new essentially uh, technological technological prosthetics I guess or something like that excellent all right to. okay cool back in just a minute everybody it's Mike this is radio orbit KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM we're with Jonathan Zapp tonight on the web zapporacle.com and we're also hearing music from the band Elsinore Champaign Illinois Rock and roll, here's some more. This one is called Sliding Glass Door. And uh, stick around. We've got more good stuff coming for the next hour and a half. And, of course, Ruth coming up at 2 a.m. to do Crash Landing. It's Mike. You're listening to KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Come as no surprise 
Cause it happens all the time I get stuck and I can't make up my mind And there's a shit with no pain Once again, that's Elsinore from their CD, Nothing for Design. It's Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. KOPN is always looking for volunteers to help us out with things down here at the station. And if you're interested in coming down here and getting involved, it's a great place to meet people. And uh, sort of a regional nerve center actually there's a lot of information that moves through a 40,000 watt FM radio station on a daily hourly weekly etc basis and you can sort of just learn a lot just by hanging around here just by osmosis sort of but anyway it's a great place to hang out and be involved with your community at the same time doing good stuff free speech obviously alive and well here in mid-Missouri and we're blasting it out every Monday night 
here on Radio Orbit, and KOPN does it 24-7. So if you'd like to get involved, get a hold of Jules on the telephone, 573-874-1139. I believe it's the first Tuesday of every month, which would have been last Tuesday, where they uh, get together with new volunteers and stuff. But just call down here at the station, 874-1139, and uh, you'll find a friendly ear for sure and tell them that you want to or that you're interested in something like that, and they'll tell you what to do and who to get in touch with. But it's very good stuff happening down here, and I'm very happy to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that a number of my listeners out there would probably be fitting in real nicely around here. So, anyway, for what it's worth. Okay, uh, about 20 minutes or so, a little less than that, maybe 18 minutes or so before the hour of 1 a.m., now on the 8th of January, 2008, and we are live on the air with Jonathan Zapp from his place in Boulder, Colorado. And we're fortunate to have Jonathan with us, and we will say hello again. Hi, John. Hey, Mike. All right, so right before the break, we were talking about, uh, or just starting to talk about, the ability to com- communicate visually and how our species sort of wants to do that. Um, I think about how certainly the eyes are the of the senses that we give the most Credence, the eyes are up there at the top. We tend to believe what we see more than what we smell or even what we touch for that matter. So, uh, and we have all these visual metaphors, you know, for, for, for clarity of speech and thought. We, we talk about painting a picture or we tell people, watch out or you see what I mean. And uh, he spoke clearly. All these things are sort of visual metaphors. So maybe continue along these lines. Well, good, good points, and it's true that we, we see light as, as the divine, and that's why in Gothic cathedrals, to represent the divine, the most immaterial material light streaming mm. through the stained glass windows. Mm, yeah. And, and, it, and it does a great job because uh, there really is something about it, and, and the, the eye is, at least according to one major theory, the real catalyst of uh, evolution. There's a book called In a Blink of, of the of the eye, and it's about the, um, I think it's called the Cambrian era Mm -hmm. in evolution, where suddenly all of these different phylum of life suddenly like sprang up and started to develop, and there was this tremendous increase in what Whitehead would call novelty. Mm -hmm. And uh, the theory of this book, uh, I think the author's name was Alan Parker, um, was that it was the evolution of the eye that did it, because once you had an eye, then you could like become a predator. And, and then other creatures would have to learn how to send off attacks. And there would be all these things, complexity, and all this novelty and adaptation that would have to happen. That once once you had eyes, you had crossed a huge evolutionary event horizon. Okay? Mm-hmm. So um, the idea is that, that the, the next um, evolutionary event horizon uh, may involve um, the obsolescence of the, as Terrence referred to them, the little mouth noises mm-hmm. that we make, the, the pressure signaling that's going on with a stream of words and a, a logos beheld. And, and basically, as William James pointed out, um, all that's necessary to disprove the notion that all crows are black is one white crow. If, if that's ever happened, then that is allowed for in the structure of reality, as Whitehead would say, it has the formality of actually existing or right. something like that. Right. And therefore, if it could have existed once, then... Um, almost from a mathematical point of view, it, it, it is now permanently part of the human performance envelope, even right. if it's rare and episodic. Right, now viable. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, um, here's an example of that. Um, mutual dreaming. Um, there are many, many verified mm-hmm. cases of yeah, this. And as yeah. a dream interpreter, I've had many brought to me where people share the same dream. People sometimes that are in different locations even, right? Exactly. Um, and and it quite often, um, it's more common when they're sleeping next to each other, but there was a dramatic case um, of that where a um, <clears throat> um, woman was on a train dreaming. Uh, she was on a... Um, trying to reach her father's deathbed and when she and she had a very particular dream and, and when she uh, got there the, the first and maybe the only words the father said to her when you came to me last night and gave me the red rose or whatever particular objects were in the dream you know that meant a lot to me you know he had experienced uh, the very same thing and of course dying uh, as dreaming are boundary dissolving circumstances mm-hmm. uh, other cases would include um some of what happens in the ayahuasca rituals. Yeah, yeah, shared experiences there for sure. Right, where, you know, anthropologists originally called the substance telepathy. Mm-hmm. Terence talks about mm-hmm. this, about how um, the Iowa squaros would, would sing their songs and, and people would experience a consensual um, synesthesia vision. They would see the same weird visual symphony uh, together. Again, generated by words, though. Right, right. Or, 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 or sound, like a carrier wave. You know? Yeah, yeah. Sound is maybe a better me- metaphor. Maybe not a word, but sounds for sure. It's some kind of catalyst for it, just like um, words in a screenplay can be a catalyst. You know, can be an underlying structure for a movie. Mm-hmm. But um, but there's this visual track happening as well. And, right. You know, there's so many different ways to slice into the subject. But I had this feeling that that uh, to kind of personalize it. And, and, and relate it back to tie it together with the find the others theme. Yeah, please. It's I've great. got a personal life story that I can re- relate to all this. Those are the best, I, in my opinion, because I'm interested in experience. I mean, I've read, you know, you know the story, you know, you, you can read this and listen to that and everything, but, but the, the best set of data comes from what actually happens to you. Absolutely, and I also feel, and I think this is part of the evolutionary theme too, uh, the, the dry scholarly voice I was trained to write in and to communicate in uh-huh. when I was going to school and, and worked for me for a while it really doesn't work anymore um, it's, it, it, it seems an artificial constriction mm. and uh, we really want uh, both hemispheres firing and so even in my writings even when I'm writing about the new ideas I'm often doing it in a somewhat more surreal way and, and I think giving life experience gives people um, a bi-hemispheric object that they can look at and also um, interpret in ways different than the way I interpret it. There's a little bit more of a specimen there. So anyway, um, this, this happened um, in the 70s when I was in college. And I'd gone to college a couple years younger than most of my classmates at 16. Hmm. And now it was um, going to be the start of my junior year. And finally, I was sort of catching up chronologically to the, the incoming freshmen. You know, I was 18. They were going to be 18. And uh, probably wanting to get out of the hot and human Bronx a little early, I signed up to be a guide for freshman orientation. So I show up at the appointed time and place, and there's an officious-looking student leader or something, somebody there with a clipboard, and, and, and people are going up there and finding out their groups. And um, he says, oh, well, it looks like uh, we forgot to assign you a group, so I guess you're not part of this. <laughs> and in intuit- and, you know, in one intuitive flash, you know, though I wasn't the most socially intelligent person at that point, but I was open to intu- intuitions, I knew immediately that this had everything to do with school politics. It had to do with 
recognition that I was getting in the small college and that this was just a total power play. Right. And then one thing that a lot of mutants have is this will that can suddenly wake up, like the way the, the, the urines and the ants would suddenly wake up from their normally passive, compliant, you know, uh, state and suddenly have this will to, ready to, you know, knock down the uh, walls of Orthanc or whatever. <laughs> and... Uh, um, um, and I laugh because that's the way I am. I mean, it's, and, I, and sometimes, you know, to my to my great uh, chagrin, sometimes I end up in trouble because of, you know of that sort of. Well, thing. it can definitely, and, and, and that's why it's important to rebel very uh, efficiently. You know, kind of like uh, Aleister Crowley's second principle: apply that will to rebel to the right medium, the right object, mm -hmm. the one that you really can change, and not just, you know running amok somewhere where you're going to end up being put in, in prison. Right. And, and where I can feel that rage coming up in you is in a recent show that I happened to listen to, Radio Orbit show, where you were talking about the mistreatment of one of your friends by the oh. local police. Well, that, 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 and that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's so intuitive you because cause I ended up you know following through with that, and I got in the face of all the local police officials, and we actually made friends, and I'm actually trying to get them involved here at the radio station. But for a short time there, I mean, I was very you know, uh, up in arms and, and, and certainly probably not the, the, the wisest of moves, frankly. And, and, but that, that is part of the role of the mutant, but it is also very important from the Eastern strategy point of view to pick the right target and not to just wave a red cape in front of a bull, mm. um, but to find where you can, you know, where is that, that leverage point Right, where can be most effective. efficiently, effectively, and often it, it involves the, the need to be cloaked because you mm. may be going right into their power game by rushing up to confront them directly. Other times, confront, direct confrontation is exactly what's called for, and that's either passive the dynamic paradoxicalist. You're, you're, you're going to shift between passive and active, between cloaked and you know, drawing the maximum attention to yourself based on the needs of the, the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> anyway, I want to... Hope I'm not losing my train of uh, thought here, but oh yeah. So we're relating this to the, the will to rebel uh, against the system. I'll just throw in this George Bernard Shaw quote um, that's very mutant friendly. He said that uh, for the average person, um, the, the average man, um, the mark of the mature man, he said, is that he adapts himself to the world that he finds himself in, and that's basically what every high school guidance counselor is telling you to do. And he said, the mark of the immature man is he expects the world to adapt itself to him. Therefore, all progress is made by unreasonable men. <laughs> so, anyway, one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, I like it too, actually. It wasn't what I was expecting, but now, uh, the more I think about it, yeah, you know. The power of words. Yeah. Just a very few words, he says philosophy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so back to the uh, college orientation thing back in the 70s. And so he says, well, I guess you're not part of this. And so immediately that, that will, will to fight back um, sparked in me. I was from the Bronx. I wasn't getting pushed around by this officious kid from the overprotected suburbs or something. And I said, oh, that's no problem. I'm, I'm just going to choose my own group. And almost like at the exact moment I said that or in the ensuing seconds, a serendipitous thought came into my mind that what I was going to do is this was going to be like an experiment, and I was going to search the, the crowd of incoming freshmen and pick the person that had the brightest aura. And I, 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 the word almost 
I almost have a gag response because it's a, it comes to sound so new age and so like theosophist and like antique occultist and all that kind of stuff. And, right, right, and by right. or I did not mean that I saw colored lights. Not that I discount that as a possibility that some people might see that, see them. But a very um, but it's something that I was very well aware of. Something that had always been a numinous and uncanny experience for me was that some people that I might encounter in the subway or wherever would just light up like thousand watt bulbs. And other people seemed like, you know, flickering candles or shadows or something, mm-hmm. uh, comparatively. And uh, the, those persons could be young or old. They were more likely young. Um, it's more remarkable when you find it in an old person, an older person. It's somehow survived all the things that were depotentiated, including physical aging. And um, I think any mutant has had that experience of, of recognition and of seeing one of the others and seeing that somebody uh, just lights up. And, of course, the unreliable case of that is when they're physically beautiful and then it's very hard to separate, you know, all kinds of other infatuations and it's easy to overvalue them and so forth. But <clears throat> um, but sometimes all those things can still come together as well and somebody can be beautiful and a mutant and all of that. So there are all these tricky cases to it. But it's a perception I think all of us have had. And for me, it, it had a parapsychological radiance. Um, there were people that just on some kind of other channel of communication would just kind of ping some sort of detector inside of me. And, and you hear descriptions of this described everywhere um, in popular culture, like in fantasy books and in science fiction books, like The Shining, where, you know, everyone has like this, some people just have a shine to them, says the, you know, mm, yeah. old black caretaker, caretaker of the Overlook Hotel or whatever. And... Um, <clears throat> Anyway, so I decide this is what I'm going to do, and uh, I look, I scan the crowd, and I see a particular person, a young male, obviously my age, because he was a freshman, who, who no one was even a close second. That there was definitely a mutant there, <laughs> and and so I sit at that table, and I join that group, and as is often the case when mutants encounter each other. Um, uh, there's this affinity and this magnetism, and, and one can sort of relate to them right from the first moment, almost as if you were picking up a conversation begun elsewhere. And there was this very natural rapport, um, and during the three days of freshman orientation, we just very naturally spent uh, times when that wasn't going on together. However, I was getting what seemed like a shocking disconfirmation experience. And it was always a very strong skeptic in me, and it always seemed so subjective, and I'd been brought up in, like, the aggressively analytical Socratic dialogue and, like, you know, the dubiousness about things that were seen as superstitious or irrational and, you know, on and on and on. And, and, and you probably, you know, have, have that in yourself since you're a mathematician and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, like, wow, this is turning out to be a total, like, because everything coming out of this, Supposed mutant's mouth, we'll call him Jeremy, sounded like a complete cliche, like exactly, but exactly like what you would expect from like a kid from the suburbs, from like that particular cultural milieu and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I still kept having the feeling that, that he was a mutant and there was this interconnection and so forth. And then like on the third evening, suddenly out of nowhere, he started saying things like, I feel like an alien, I feel like I'm different from everybody mm-hmm. in the place that I've grown up. And, and all the completely different set of things come out of him. Well, now, 
it's embarrassing to, to say this, but um, I was no prodigy in, in social intelligence at that point because of you know, being a thinking, intuitive type. That's kind of like a, an inferior function that takes a while to catch up. <laughs> and in my incredible psychological naivete, um, I somehow thought, because it was such a, a cognitive dissonance because he, everything he said was like so flat and superficial and now suddenly it sounded like the things I say in my own mind, right. I thought like, I've contaminated him with my madness. <laughs> now I've made him crazy, like me or something like that. And I thought that, like you know, um, that this is this is me having an unwholesome effect or something. Huh. And um, some other things came up, and, and we just kind of like separated. Huh. So it was a, uh, I don't know how I could be so foolish, but that's what happened. And and then for the rest of the year after freshman orientation. We had a, really no connection at all. I would just see him occasionally in the hallway and on campus, and we just nod to each other. And I was totally caught up with all kinds of other relationships and all kinds of things going on, and um, and didn't think too much about him anymore. And so now it's the next year, okay, my senior year, and it's not even the beginning of the senior year. It's like a, sometime in October, and uh, just another time passing him in the hallway. But this particular time, or maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't even in the hallway, but maybe it was, you know, a few minutes after I, I saw him or something, almost as clear as a bell. And it's funny because I have a, a clock that just set off I a just little heard, gong I, in the background. I just heard it, and I looked at my clock, and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I hope John had that set so he knows that we got to take a break in a couple." Okay, minutes. Okay, but this was a pure synchronicity. I just have a clock that you know I makes a it. gong every, and you heard it in the background. Yeah. But just as clear as a bell, huh. I, I heard this. I felt this thought form that like he wanted to talk to me. Uh huh. And we'll just, um, I guess that's probably a good place to leave it if the clock is ticking down. Let's do that. We'll come back and we'll finish your story, okay? Okay. All right, awesome. Incredible, everybody. It's Jonathan Zapp. Once again, on the web at www.zapporacle.com. It's a great website with lots of interesting stuff there. The, the Oracle itself is a blast. And interesting, uh, just if you're... Uh, anybody, just if you, even if it's just for fun, just to mess around with. Uh, but you can take it more seriously as uh, as you choose. Either way, lots of good stuff over there. Uh, Jonathan has a blog that's associated and connected up to the website as well. So I advise that you take a look over there either now during the break or sometime after the program, and uh, certainly give uh, give his website a look and a, and a and a sniff through. Okay. All right. It's Mike once again. Radio Orbit KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. This is a band called Elsinore, and the song is called Words Break Through. Back in a few minutes, it's Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia.
on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Great stuff from this rock and roll band from Champaign, Illinois. University of Illinois, of course, over that way. I um, am familiar with the, with the name of the band Elsinore only because of that old uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie movie. Remember Strange Brew, those two guys from uh, Canada? Rick Moranis and... Uh, Hell, I forget the other guy's name. I shouldn't, but they were both great from SCTV and that whole group. But that was a great movie. It was called Strange Brew, and it was a silly story about the McKenzie brothers and their um, their their search for, for good beer up there in the great white north. Anyway, Elsinore Brewing Company uh, was, the I think, the name of the central brewing company up there in that movie. But whether they'd use that... As, <laughs> In, in the making of the name of this band or not, I have no idea, but I'll stop my digression and get back to my guest, Jonathan Zapp. 
and say hello to Boulder, Colorado. What's happening there? It's now midnight. Happy New Year, a week late. Thank you. What's, uh, I'm what's excited you... about 2008. Yeah, me too. I think we, before the end of the program, we'll have to talk a little bit about what you think uh, is on tap for the next uh, next 12 months or so. But let's continue with, uh, with your story about uh, your friend from school. Okay, who we're calling uh, Jeremy. That's right. Him, not his real name. And so I got this very strong ping, uh, very bell-like, um, that he wanted to talk to me. So the next time I saw him in the hall, I, I stopped him and said, would you like to get together and talk? And it was with great alacrity he said yes. Um, and at the appointed time, we, we met in his room, and it was a, a triple, but like neither of his roommates were there. It was much larger than an average college room. It was right, very right. brightly lit. Mm -hmm. And we were sitting further apart than people ordinarily sitting in a college dorm room might sit, like probably at least seven or eight feet apart, and, and talking. And I just happened to notice he was sort of very assiduously avoiding eye contact for some reason. And I pointed it out. And then after I pointed it out, he made an effort to maintain eye contact, not some weird fixed stare or anything like that, just made an effort to maintain ordinary eye contact. Well, um, maybe only a few seconds after that, um, there was a sudden, complete change of reality, um, a real rupture of plain experience, um, unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my entire life. And, and, and by the way, you know, there was absolutely nothing in my system except college cafeteria food. In fact, at this point in my life, you know, beer might have been the strongest mind-altering substance I'd encountered mm -hmm. that came later in life for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so cold sober, and um, everything changed. Um, the whole room um, didn't even seem like a three-dimensional space anymore. All the colors were reversed. Uh, the thought of my mind, like a color negative, um, observed this weird change in colors. It was almost like a video screen, and um, but sort of breaking the, the uh, um, tableau-like, electrified kind of tableau-like effect were, were the, his eyes that seemed to be, you know, more powerful and more something than, than anything else in, the, in this whole thing that was going on around, around me. And... Um, I, my thoughts were racing. I was completely shocked, and I, and I had two distinct thoughts about what this could be. The first thought was um, I had a cousin who was uh, paranoid schizophrenic who was almost exactly my age, and I thought, like, okay, you know, this is the, the exact right age for uh, a, par a paranoid, for a schizophrenic break, you know, adolescence and so forth, and, and this could be exactly what it would be like. The other thought I had was I'd, of course, heard about things like LSD, and I thought, like, you know, what if somebody at dinner put LSD in my drink and, and now it's like kicked in and you know I'm hallucinating something like that. so I'm just completely shocked by this and then um, maybe I broke eye contact with him and the state stopped and I have no idea that that he's experienced any of this I'm just don't even know what to say and, and he speaks first and the first words out of his mouth were wow that was like a color negative huh. and what we discovered sort of matter-of-factly like that yeah, he, the very the very same um, phrase that had uh, occurred in my mind, uh, so it almost seemed telepathic. Mm -hmm. And what we quickly discovered was that just by making maintaining eye contact, especially if it was silent eye contact, nonverbal eye contact, that we would go into this very strange state where it felt like there was this massive communication going on, but that I also felt 
very strongly intuitively that it was sort of like communication in its infancy. I didn't know how to operate the language. I Gosh, didn't, I man, couldn't be sure of what I was getting. Man, it reminds me of a DMT experience. Like like you both had a had a, a sudden increase in DMT in your own neurosystems or whatever. I mean, God, it sounds well, like... Well, it's an endogenous neurotransmitter. Right, right. And we so know that, that, that people's hormones and neurotransmitters are, are being shifted by other people all the time. Right. It's just ordinary. That's right. why women, you know, living together, menstruate together, and mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, two mutants coming together can spark something. Man, oh, man, that is wild. And as Jung said, you know, every, every two people that come together create a, a, a unique combination that's never existed before in the universe. Right. Right. And so we discovered that we could sort of go into the state at will. I realized then that there after were... After the fact. In other words, after that first experience, you could do that, you know, I mean, a week later or whatever. Absolutely. On demand, every time. And that I also realized that there was at least one other person, a close friend of mine, another mutant, that I could, I could go into that state with. And it basically, the people that I could get into that state with were, were the people that lit up as having the auras, that had, you know, mm-hmm. being the mutants. He was, you know, the very thing that... that me to this person to right, begin with. Right. Now, 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 to what end? In other words, was it valuable? In other words, did you use it for anything? Um, well, no, was um, there I think the value or? was more the d- discovery itself. I mean, I think it's it's a medium of communication that mm. could be used in in, a, in all sorts right. of different ways, right. but Again, we, we need to right. have skill in doing it, and right. we're at a disadvantage because we've been booted up into a place where people are Operating on the you know English uh, uh, you know transmission language mm-hmm. and that that's the software we were booted up into and we were conditioned to make lots of little mouth noises and right. all this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I get it now. And this is why you said you felt it like an infant, that like it was there, but you didn't particularly know how to manipulate it yet. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you could certainly feel that it was happening. Right. I it was happening on many, many levels. Like one of the things that would happen, I hate to kind of lead the witness in case people want to try this on their own, but um, they'll probably discover this anyway, um, is you would see different faces in the person as if there were other people connected to their timeline. I mean, I'm not going to conclude mm. it was past incarnations, but it was like other selves. Maybe there was other versions of that person living in parallel realities. Who knows what it was, but this was something that would be reported by others who I would not lead and not tell them anything about what to expect, but what people um, so often seem to report is you would see these different characters or different beings that were roughly anthropomorphic in shape, but could be you know, very, very different in body structure than a regular human being as well. Mm-hmm. Wow, how strange. Well, uh, let me ask you, all right, so this is an intimation perhaps of things to come or things that are possible that we're not quite ready for or understand. Uh, well, actually, it's, it's, it's things that are happening right in front of us and that are as close to ob- us as objects in our rooms right, right I mean, now. I mean, if it's happening to you... I mean, it's ha- that means it's happening. And it's happening on so many different levels. On so many different levels, we are becoming far more visual, and mm. our visual processing mm. is becoming enhanced. And we might have even talked about this once before. I mean, when, when silent films first came out, they only had fixed focal-length lenses. Mm. Mm-hmm. When the first zoom lens was created, and then people were seeing the movie that resulted from the use of zooming in on someone... They, they gasped because this woman's face was getting bigger. What was going on? Right, they didn't get it, yeah. Right, when, when people saw the first, very first film that showed a train pulling into a uh, station, apparently, you know, some people go for their, their seats. They had no way of interpreting mm-hmm. this information. 
Yeah. And now, like, Isn't I can watch a movie and just in the opening credits, there are so many surreal dissolves and montages, mm-hmm. and yet the modern audience follows this, no probably this complex, surreal language. And so there's this huge hemispheric shift happening, mm. and it's possible that the whole nightmare of history, if we're to believe Leonard Schlein, who makes a very strong case in his book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, the whole dominator culture uh, that took over from the partnership societies as described by Rianne Eisler in her seminal work, The Chalice and the Blade, sure, sure. Um, according to, to his research, was triggered by the adoption of written alphabets, which mm-hmm. meant a shift to the... Um, dominating dominance of the left hemisphere, the hierarchical hemisphere that would think in a linear way. And as soon as uh, those alphabets would be adopted, and uh, Joseph Campbell kind of documented this too, women could no longer participate in religious rituals. We would go from like a goddess to um, um, a male god with a female consort, and eventually it would just be the male god would even get rid of the female consort and so forth. And um, there'd be this shift toward the patriarchal modality. And in the beginning was the word. Uh, various cultures would have a divine book, uh, the Torah, the Koran, uh, the, the Code of Hammurabi or whatever, uh, the rule of law. There would, the document would come first. The word would be the most powerful thing. And, and uh, clerics from various traditions would even start to wear black and white, the colors of paper and, and ink. And, the, and each culture... Um, that would adopt an alphabet, or at least all the ones that adopted any of the Abrahamic uh, faiths of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, would go through intense phase of, of being anti-image. In fact, that would even be a central part of those religions. So that, for example, the, ten, the second of the Ten Commandments is about not having images. Um, idol, uh, it's popularly interpreted as like about getting rid of idols, but uh, idol actually comes from I think a Greek word, idolum, or, uh, that, that means image. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it says right in the Torah, um, you know, not a, an image of a, a, a fish swimming in the oceans, mm-hmm. a bird flying in the skies. Graven mm-hmm. images, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what's the most anti-image culture today? Uh, the one that of the Abrahamic faiths came latest to alphabetic literacy. It's Islam. Uh, what does it do to women? It erases their visual communication happening through our faces with the burqa. Um, it doesn't allow representational images, not just of the Prophet Muhammad, but of anything, and that's why it created all those beautiful Byzantine abstract patterns, because nothing could be represented visually. The Christians had the iconoclasts that would go around breaking up, you know, priceless statues from classical antiquity because they were, they were totally anti-image mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. But now this is all shifting. Oh, my God. I think, you know, we, we, we uh, have been talking a little bit about the past and about 2007 and things that have happened. I mean, I, two words, YouTube. Absolutely. I mean, my God, I mean, as far as, you know, communicating visually, this was a huge leap forward that happened in six months' time. You know? Exactly. And a big part of this will be technological. Technological evolution and organic evolution parallel each other. That shouldn't be a surprise because it's, after all, the evolving human psyche that's creating this stuff. And, um, you know, if we look at futuristic extrapolations of what virtual reality could provide, it'd be something that the technological analog to the mutual dreaming that already uh, exists now and then. Hmm. Um, You would enter this world with someone. 
uh, at the end of a long interview about virtual reality, uh, um, I think in Terence's book, The Archaic Revival, the interviewer, as if saying the clinching statement to conclude the interview, says, so in the future, we'll all be living in the movies. <laughs> and Terence says, um, no, in the future, we'll all be movies. And, and this is actually a very powerful and valid way in which we could communicate with the... Um, you, you would enter my dream space. So instead of just uh, a linear series of words or mouth noises like we're doing right now, um, there would be this whole uh, world or um, parallel universe that, that you, know, you, you would enter. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, we, we can see the will for this in all sorts of things. It's, for example, as soon as human beings can create textiles and color them, we start adopting different costumes for different occasions. And and we are always visually transforming ourselves in our environments. Mm-hmm. And uh, a natural extension of that is a desire to be able to put on the right body for the right occasion. There's a tremendous, un- often unlanguaged suffering in the human species. We have what I call a will toward the glorified body, um, a will toward a more changeling, plastic, um, body that would be a, a more uh, high vocabulary visual communication to others mm-hmm. where you could put on the right body for the right occasion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, virtual reality promises to allow that. And, and you know, at the beginning of the internet, we, we traveled around just like in the present chat room with just these little name labels. But um, if we're playing War of, World of Warcraft, then we can have what they call an avatar. The avatar is now. And, and think about the meaning of the word avatar, spirit descended into the flesh. Right, right. And so now um, we can shift our bodies to be appropriate to inner psychic content. And, and that's very desirable. And it is only completely natural that, that we would summon whatever forms of magic we can, thinking about the Crowley definition, that would be everything from better computer codes to uh, plastic surgery to genetic enhancements to creating a sort of Damocles situation over the entire species where the whole species uh, would be threatened with fraying the, the fragile organic tether that allows us to stay in a form that has bodies. Because it may be that only by because organisms are conservative and they defend the present equilibrium and that's why mutants are always going up against a system and the system will often have an immunological reaction to them as an irritating mutagenic force that they would like to uh, um, suppress. Um, the equilibrium um, is so powerful that in order to disturb it on a collective level, there need to be it may need that the whole genome might need to be threatened. That's how you could get a quantum adaptation, uh, a willingness to change on a massive level. The last such, um, the most recent such quantum evolutionary shift that occurred was when hominids began to think and speak in words. Mm. And now if you think about how that might have happened, and linguists believe that all languages originated in a single time and place, and they call that original root language, uh, primal Indo-European, or some people say that it's Sanskrit. Um, So that means it happened in one time and one place. Now what it seems reasonable to conjecture, it's of course a total speculation, but that in order for this a new amazing phenomenon to emerge, 
the latent capacity for it must have been developing neurologically for a long, long time. Mm, makes sense. You can't just have a single mutant because it's a group phenomenon, right? That they suddenly have to start working on this together. So what I would conjecture is that the ability for it existed on a latent level, but there was there'd have to be a massive disturbance of the equilibrium for right, it to come up because right. it represents such a, an intense change from mm, the past. And mm. we know that tribal groups are not really known for their ability to of high novelty for right, all their other right. merits, apparently. Well, um, if, if, you, if you don't mind, let me jump in real fast for okay. something, because I think it's important to recognize that the way uh, evolution, perhaps, uh, people understand it, is different than maybe the way that it works, I think. Um, in other words, a lot of people think, in my experience with talking with people about their impressions about evolution, people think that, you know, even educated people that, are, that you know that have studied it, they sort of assume that the there's sort of the standard expression of the genotype, you know, the sort of standard critter, and then there are always mutants being thrown out into the mix, and uh, you know they arise all the time, and that every once in a while a mutant type arises on the scene that just overwhelms and uh, and takes over. The uh, the previous uh, dominating genotype, and my impression, at least my understanding from what I've learned, is that it really doesn't work like that. It's more like these mutations, these mutants, are being thrown into the mix all the time, but only when the environment shifts, when the uh, conditions of life and whatever change, then. Uh, a gene, for example, that may have very little significance in the previous uh, environment can all of a sudden now have tremendous significance in this new environment. So it's more about something that's latent inside of certain individuals but only becomes significant after the environment changes. Uh, it's an incredibly good point. And, and I guess I should have emphasized that I'm not talking about orthodox Darwinian evolution. Uh, it, it seems like that there are, it's not creationism, but it, it seems that there are many other complexities in evolution not fully accounted for mm -hmm. in that one theory. Mm -hmm. and, and one that you spoke about where there's uh, a change in the environment, just like we know that some people have a gene that predisposes them towards schizophrenia. Right. Sometimes you even have identical twins where one becomes schizophrenic, the other doesn't, because one was exposed to stressors that triggered that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it, it, it's going to take uh, intense stressors probably uh, to trigger this as well. We see that shock is a necessary principle in nature, and I Ching recognizes this because shock is not only one of the 64 hexagrams, it's actually one of the eight trigrams that mm -hmm. compose the hexagrams. Uh, that's how basic it is, and we know in our individual lives that we need uh, shock, and we need it often in a form of something very dark happening to stir up our development. And anybody can discover the necessity for this by playing God, which you would do, for example, if you were writing a story or being a fantasy writer and creating your own little world, or you know, it can be the ordinary world, too. And let's say your goal is to write about a character that develops. Well, you're going to have to chuck uh, something at them. Mm. You're going to have to shock them. Um, if you think about the world of Middle Earth without Soren and Saruman and ring raves and orcs and so forth, Basically, you'd have hobbits going out on dates with other hobbits. Mm. It would be pleasant. It would also be very stagnant. 
Well, let me, let, let, let me ask you something about that, because we've had the entire story of human, you know, the human experience, our history, has been one essentially of, you know, like you mentioned earlier, like Joyce said, you know, history is a nightmare. I'm trying to awake from it. It's been horrific, and, and, and oftentimes these shocks, in fact, all of the time it seems like the shocks are... Uh, n- negative. I don't know if that's the right word, but but certainly difficult experiences. Uh, I guess my question is: Isn't it possible that there could be a shock that's not like that? In other words, a shock that's wonderful. Is that is that a possible? Um, well, I'm I'm really glad that you you pointed that out because that's absolutely true. No, we've, had, we've had all these other shocks in the past. It's like the old shocks don't even work anymore. I mean, I'm not shocked by. I mean, how much war and destruction? You got to see. I mean, it doesn't shock me at all anymore. The only thing that can shock me is something the opposite of that. I think it's gone so extreme. Yeah, I mean, it's basically um, the, the horrors of history are really becoming the golden oldies. It's mm. like we've been there, we've done that, right. and and you you make a very um, important point and, and and a compensatory point because there's a real defect in the collective attitude where we tend to always think of these as uh, negative things and we think of. Uh, you know, apocalypse is a negative thing, but it, we know it actually means an unveiling and so mm-hmm. forth. And um, I'm also indebted to my friend Rob Brezny, who wrote a wonderful book called Pronoia. Yeah, Pronoia. Which is of paranoia, maybe. be a very good guest on your show sometime. Yeah. I'd love to have Rob on the show, actually. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll, 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 I'll let him know that. Okay. I'm sure he'd love to be on. And, and, you know, Pronoia is the opposite of paranoia, mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on the idea that the universe is conspiring to shower you with blessings. Right. <laughs> and, and one of the... the Pronoic aspects, I believe, in nature itself, and this is a major violation of Darwinian evolution, but it, but it is a point of view I share with Terence McKenna and with, with uh, Teilhard de Chardin, is the view of evolution as teleological, as right. having a certain goal. It's right, there's not, a purpose here, yeah. It's not as, like Terence described, the, the point of view of you know modern Darwinian historians, that you know history is just like this trendlessly fluctuating like a drunk staggering down the, the street or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a goal, and the observable goal, which we can see from the unfolding of uh, even, you know, uh, of life on this planet, you know, as, as Tehard pointed out, you know, starting with this molten ball, and then it cools down, and more complex compounds crystallize, and then you, uh, you know, start to get a whole other sphere of development when, when there's one-celled life. And then when that one-celled life starts a process called cephalization, where there's some sort of head, um, and especially when eyes start, then there's kind of like an interiority. There's a whole other level of information and so forth. And so you see this natural progression, and it's atropic. It's the opposite of entropy. There's this thing that's moving things naturally toward greater and greater complexity, even though everything would seem to be lined up against that. Mm-hmm. And we even know about the, the anthropic principle of the universe mm-hmm. that confounds physics, physics mm-hmm. where there are so many different physical parameters that are just arbitrarily set exactly where they need to be to have life. And if it was, you know, if the, the you know, one of those attractive forces was like a millionth of a percent stronger, um, you know, stars wouldn't have formed. And mm-hmm. if it was, a, you know, Weaker, they wouldn't have formed for another reason, and so right, forth. Right, like, it's got a million percent, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, it seems like there is something that is uh, seeking the growth of what Whitehead called novelty, and that means um, a movement toward eventually 
self-awareness, but also a complexification, a creation of new forms, and a density of interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that movement toward the density of interconnectedness we see happening technologically and organically. The most densely interconnected object that we know of is the human brain. It, not surprisingly, um, the human brain creates the Internet, the most um, densely interconnected artifact ever created. Okay, so there's this uh, principle um, that, that's moving things in that direction. And if for, the, for this to progress, because unlike other organisms, including even the human body, um, there is one for almost every other organism that that conservative homeostatic equilibrium is mostly a good thing, at least in the life of the individual. It's for keeping things on an even keel. We're not too hot, too cold, right. and, and so on. Right. But the human psyche is the most disadvantaged by that um, even keel homeostasis, and that's reflected in uh, the Dylan lyric: "He who's not busy being born is busy dying." We're a complex process that needs to, that, that's so complex and so in need of evolution and development that, that the system bifurcates. Mm. You're pretty much going lower or higher. You can really kind of separate that way. There's a lot of middle ground and there's lots of ups and downs, but we can definitely see that in, in, in people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in yeah. order to keep that, that stagnation from developing, you need to get shocks. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for the macro shock of the giant asteroid that hit the Earth 65 million years ago, um, as Terence put it, flattening anything larger than a chicken, you know, there wouldn't have been the opportunity for mammals to come in and, and, and for all this novelty to be created so right. we weren't just right. you know, and we get our you know, land of dinosaurs anymore. Right. Okay, look, um, I want to take a break in a minute, but before I do that, you mentioned suffering briefly uh, in a comment that you made maybe 15 minutes ago or so. And I'm interested in the role of mind, the role of the mind in suffering. I recognize certainly that there is physical suffering, uh, but what's the role of mind in this whole thing? Excellent. Can we do it in five minutes? Or should we come back, or should we take a break and then uh, and talk a little bit more about it? Uh, so why don't we get the break out of the way and we'll... we'll yeah, let's do that, okay? That. All right, no problem. We'll do that. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk about that and some more stuff, okay? Great. Everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guest is Jonathan Zapp, if you're just joining us. On the web, www.zapporacle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, zapporacle.com. And it's a great website, and John's doing great work and has been for some time, and I'm really pleased that we can uh, have a chance to talk with him again tonight. So we will take uh, a short break here, only about three minutes or so, and play a song called The Rise. Once again, this is Elsinore from Champaign, Illinois. And you're listening to it here on KOPN Columbia Radio Orbit. Mike Hagan back with Jonathan Zapp in just a few minutes. Dance with me alive. Saw myself drowning. 
sense upon the waning east. So I sweetly shadow a promise on the westerly, a lantern and indemnity, and I finally got him all at once. I felt the way taken off of me, must have been quite a sight to see the ride. I heard the wind howling its philosophy, such a sweet sounding melody outside. Sonor on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit on the web at uh, kopn.org, of course, and my website www.mikehagan.com. And while we're at it, www.zaporacle.com for my guest, Jonathan Zapp, who's been with us for the last two hours. We've got about another 25 minutes or so, and we will continue right along the way. All right, Jonathan, we're talking about, just about to at least, talking about suffering. And I think it's important because a lot of people are. And um, as you mentioned earlier, it doesn't particularly matter if you've got it all figured out in the economic world or if you've got great uh, sex or if you've got this or that. Everybody, at least in my experience, at least sometime in their life, experiences some very, very difficult times. And a lot of that is either physical or emotional suffering. Yes, and I'm, I'm grateful for you uh, bringing this up and, and and, but just to kind of put a large frame around it, you can see how there's a need to alternate between the, the, the light side looking at things, the, the evolutionary event horizon, and then what things look like from the shadow point mm. of view as well. And so it's kind of like uh, you're kind of tacking our sailboat in the wind. And so when, when I was talking about shocks, you brought up that, that it could be a positive mm. thing. And when mm -hmm. I started talking about how we could break free of our corporeal form and all these wonderful solar possibilities, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're bringing us back to suffering. So mm -hmm. you're, you're playing a good compensatory role there. And um, suffering um, can be one of the most um, powerful and useful forms of shock. Um, mm -hmm. What I've actually preferred is uh, anguish. When, anguish when, when suffering gets stagnant, it turns to depression. Um, when you're fortunate enough mm. to experience the right kind of suffering, and again, we don't want to presume that all suffering is a developmental catalyst, 
that would be another form of shadow denial. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, you know, it's like in uh, 12-step groups, they say things like, uh, God only gives you the burdens you need to bear and so forth. Mm-hmm. I'll accept that for myself in my present state with a lot of inner resources. I wouldn't be wanting to, I think I'd feel pretty glib telling that to a baby dying of AIDS. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to assume that all suffering is developmental. And, and it, you know, it's like Nietzsche said, whatever, you know, anything that doesn't kill, kill us makes us stronger. Very Germanic sentiment, but he also died insane from the effects of syphilis. So mm-hmm. apparently the principle may not apply in all cases, at least without resorting to other lifetimes and so forth. And so um, the ideal thing is to find meaning in the suffering and to incorporate the suffering into your personal mythology and not in any superficial way, but perception is not about finding out what's going on um, as if there were just one thing going on. It's it's really a choice. How you choose to interpret the suffering uh, completely alters the the timeline, Hmm. not in a completely absolute sense like that you create your own reality, fundamentalist, but in an inner sense very profoundly. And in a very real way, not only does it change what you're experiencing, um, actually suffering experienced um, in the present can change the past. For example, let's take two timelines, one in which someone is is suffering because of alcoholism. And um, during the midst of that suffering, in the dark night of the soul, they have a realization or they discover a will in themselves uh, to turn that around. And and they, they, they start to recover from that. And, um, and, and a new timeline is, is created where they, they're able to help others who are similarly afflicted because of all the things, vast things they learn by this mm-hmm. tremendous descent into, into uh, darkness. Right, right. And so now that that suffering reinterprets the whole past of their lives um, in, in, in a very positive way. Now, right, it was right. an alchemical darkness mm-hmm. that helped to metamorphize mm-hmm. them and, and give them a uh, help their development and help them to help others as well. Right. I, I, you know, when you describe it like that, I sort of see my own life like that and, and the difficulties that I've been through um, to help me sort of continue on and uh, do good stuff with it and try to help other people maybe interpret maybe things that I've experienced too. I think maybe a lot of people, uh, maybe there aren't many alternatives. In other words, we we all seem to be bound to some sort of suffering and so the trick maybe as you mentioned is how we deal with that do we do change it into you know transmute it in an alchemical sense into something that can be helpful in healing or do we never come out of that dark hole well exactly and, and that is a very real possibility and, and so there the other timelines in order to do justice to the shadow must be put alongside it mm-hmm. because from another way of handling that suffering is to feel ever more victimized and, and um, that life is dark and, and completely out of your control. And now that state of suffering is a further epoch on the downward spiral mm-hmm. of that particular soul and that particular timeline. And so um, suffering um, can be, if you're, if you're strong enough and you have the inner resources, can be a developmental uh, catalyst and, and it takes you away from complacency. Mm-hmm. It takes you away from being comfortably numb. And, and so that's uh, something that, that uh, the conscious person um, who's not suffering so badly that it, but it's just shattering them 
um, is able to to get something out of it, and that, that the suffering that I experienced and in in an annihilation um, in the experience uh, from last summer that I told you about, mm-hmm. um, you know, was something I would never wish on myself. Was something I never, would never choose again. After it was over, it felt completely diabolical and, and like I had been, you know, you know just completely um, uh, pulverized and, and annihilated. Um, but it's produced tremendous lasting change. And when I look back in my life, um, some changes were created by delightful and unexpectedly positive shocks. Others were created by the intense dark nights of the soul. And even alchemically, you have to, like, get to the negredo. You have to get to that, you know, prima materia, that, like, dark, chaotic matter. I might be mixing my alchemical terms, but you you have to get there. You have to break down the present structure. And, And even collectively, the collective suffering that people are experiencing in our present matrix, our present consensual reality, if that gets strong enough, that can potentiate a will to change. The conservatism is going to be much stronger when everybody's well fed and you know they're getting all the rewards of the consensual um, matrix. Mm. Uh, when when the suffering intensifies, there can be a will to, to rebel, and we don't know when that will might become effective at some point. It has in many ways in the past. Something comes to mind, and I'll just throw it in here, and maybe you can comment on it. I had a dream one time, and I'm I'm not a profound dreamer. I'm one of these people that. I'm sure I dream regularly, like most people, but I don't remember particularly often. And I rarely have, you know, the, the sort of bell ringer dreams. And But once in a while I do. I have these big, uh, you know, events every one or two years or something where I have a really profound dream, and it's vivid, and it's color, and then I can't forget it. You know, it's like, so I have like a little catalog of over the years my, you know, the dreams that have been really s- sticking out. And one of the ones that I had was a few years ago, and it had to do with suffering, but it had to do with the suffering of other creatures on the planet that are suffering due to the actions of of, of the human monkeys. And it wasn't particularly sentimental. It wasn't like a PETA attitude or something like that, but it was just the fact that there are so many other individuals among so many other species that are suffering. And it became very clear to me in a dream, you know, uh, everything from, the, you know, the, the, the pigs that are in factory farms in, right here in Missouri to, you know, the simple things that would occur regardless of what the human monkeys were doing, you know. I mean, there's suffering everywhere. Well, th- this is a very classic big dream, and it shows uh, an effect at work that, that Jung often talked about dreams as compensatory as compensating for a defect in the waking attitude. And here I think you were having a dream for the whole collective, and that's probably what would inspire you to share it with others, because one of the things that defines us as a species is we're hyper-intelligent and able to do all these extraordinary things, but we are divorced from an intuitive, direct, empathic connection to the living matrix that surrounds us. And now what's, what's crucial, and, and that's why we can do things, you know, we, if we put gas in our SUV and have our five buck, you know, a couple of Starbucks coffee in our hand, we feel great. We don't feel like what went into creating that right. gallon of gas and right. what the consequences were. Right, we have no problem with the fact that there are, you know, 
uh, you know, brutal happenings in laboratories all around just to make new perfumes or something or anything like that. Right, and if that state of limited awareness continues, it, that's a timeline that leads toward extinction. And, and Frank Herbert, the, the visionary author mm -hmm. of the, the great mm -hmm. masterpiece of Noon Books, mm -hmm. um, and he was also a, kind of an, an ecological visionary, and um, he compared our situation to um, different types of rat poison, where if you give rats a poison where as soon as they eat it, they go into seizures or foam at the mouth and keel over or whatever, it doesn't work because rats are intelligent enough that they see a, another rat eat that stuff. Right. It happens, and they're like, I'm not touching that. Right, right. Okay? However, um, and, and it quickly becomes ineffective. However, if you give rats a poison like warfarin, mm. a spooky-sounding name, um, a slow-acting poison, it's likely to kill all of them because they can't connect eating the bait with the symptoms that come later. Mm -hmm. So basically, we are like that. We, we are uh, very isolated. And actually, to put this in a, a more dynamic paradoxicalist frame, uh, that was actually very necessary because uh, this is a theory I have at least. Um, a, a more global telepathy and group telepathy is really more the norm in nature, like uh, schools of fish, flocks right. of birds, right. Okay, uh -huh. served a huge evolutionary purpose. Again, not the Darwinian evolution, but the one that assumes that evolution aims toward novelty to uh, encapsulate the psyche. This is why the, the uh, psychic structure that gets abused often by people on Eastern and New Age paths, but is extremely necessary, the ego is formed, and it kind of helps to encapsulate that psyche. So there's less groupthink, and now what's created um, is this rich growth of novelty, and, of course, a lot of that rich growth will be pathological. That's the, the, the dark and light alchemy of things, okay? Mm -hmm. you, you don't, as a Tom Robbins character put it, you don't get a big top without a big bottom, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, but it's a very valuable process. I compare it to, like, putting an irritant in an oyster, and around it, it accretes mm -hmm. in this isolation and encapsulation. It accretes all these beautiful opalescent layers until this pearl of great price is created, which is self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's served this huge purpose, but now that way of doing things has reached an evolutionary cul-de-sac. If we continue with the egocentric frame of mind and looking out for number one, well, that timeline seems to end in extinction because we, we do things with complete disregard for the, the living matrix mm -hmm, mm -hmm. around us. So um, what I anticipate, based on the work that I've done from, you know, like from looking at emergent archetypes in people's dreams and in popular culture, like in science fiction stories, is the message seems to be this is the time for the oysters to open mm. and for the pearls to lie together uh, once more. And But for the, the barriers, the firewall separating us from this global telepathy should not fall in the way it's often imagined in some Eastern disciplines where there's a return to homogeneity and where oneness is seen as preferable to eachness but where there's an interface of eachness and oneness. So individuality is not lost. Mm -hmm. It's, in fact, exponentiated and deepened by this far richer uh, communication with others. Mm. And we see this in many of these same um, modern mythologies that show up in visionary works of science fiction work, for example, like the Dune books. So, for example, um, there is a very conscious sisterhood that's trying to manipulate human evolution create a, a, you know, a mutant called the Quitsatz Hadarach. This is the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood. 
and um, key to advance in that sisterhood is to survive a, uh, a very dangerous rite of initiation called taking the water of life, where you take yes. an absolutely de- deadly poison, um, which you must change and transform in your own body or die. Um, if you survive um, the imbibing of this completely um, lethal fluid, um, you now gain awareness of all the other Reverend Mothers, dead or alive, that have similarly passed through this rite of initiation. Your individuality is not lost, but you're aware of all those other psyches sort of networked to yours. And have access to that information. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where I think things are heading, and this Man. is what we're doing technologically on the Internet level, and this is why we may be purposefully, purposefully um, destroying the environment and the organic basis of mm-hmm. life. Um, we may be trying to cr- amp up the evolutionary pressure so that we have to collectively enter um, some, something where uh, the physics of the dream time apply more than the, the ordinary physics of waking life. Remarkable. The flying saucer. Uh, well, this is an extremely related um, um, mythological and, and actual form. And uh, one way of looking at the flying saucers is as psychoid objects. And that was something that, that Jung speculated about them in his uh, book, Flying Saucer, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. These could be psychoid objects. In fact, they seem to obey the physics of dreams more than the physics of Newtonian macro objects that you would expect of metal crafts with rivets and, and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, anti-gravity, they can move at will, they can, they can turn Just on like a dime. Just like you can in a dream, they can change right. shape, they can mm-hmm. merge with one another mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, they might be organisms and not merely craft, or they could be craft as well and some are one thing and some are, are, are another. You know, it's, it's not one of it. Um, there may be many explanations and many different types of things going on. Right, right. Um, but uh, here we, we have objects that, that seem like an interpenetration of the dream time. Um, and as one uh, physicist described it to, to Jacques Vallée, if you want to understand what they, in quotes, are, um, you know, he called them reality transformers. So Vallée compared it to sitting in a, in a movie theater and you're looking at a screen and seeing all these fantastic images passing by, but if you really want to know what's going on, you have to kind of look over your shoulder and back at the projector that's generating all these images. Well, this seems to be an organism, a technology, whatever it is, that has access to that projector that can um, commu- that typically communicates telepathically. Mm-hmm. The whole visual communication theme we see recapitulated right, because the right. grays are described as having these enormous eyes mm-hmm. and vestigial mouths. And um, they're usually described as communicating telepathically mm-hmm. uh, to the people who are abducted or have encounter experiences. So in whatever level of reality that's occurring, whether these are us from another timeline or from the future trying to morph the timelines by, by circling back, um, whether they are happening as consensual species-wide hallucinations, whether they are species from other worlds, whatever version of it take, um, the so-called postmodern way is to you know, ask what, what effect they're having on, on us. Um, and they seem to be manipulating um, collective mythologies more than anything else and, and altering us in a psychological sense. Because if it's just genetic manipulation, they're awfully inefficient, as Valet also points out. Yeah, I've never really bought into that. I've always thought, you know, if they've got the 
the know-how to get from there to here, wherever there might be, that they've probably already figured out the whole genetic. I mean, we're close to getting that, you know, the genetic thing figured out, and and we're, uh, you know, we we can't even go to the moon without, uh, you know, basically shooting a big bullet at it. So. Uh, right, we, re- we recreate them in our own likeness, so we assume mm-hmm. that they have the motives that were familiar to us in right. our imperialist right. conquests and mm-hmm. so forth, and, and mm-hmm. we can't rule those things out. We can't assume that they have a benign uh, mission here, because some of the, the best observers have noticed all sorts of malevolent aspects mm-hmm. to it. Very weird, yeah. But we, we are um, in a place where we are starting to notice uh, the exceptions to the rules of the matrix, as we were taught. Mm-hmm. And as uh, the British biologist J.B.S. Haldane said, reality is not only stranger than you think, it's stranger than you can think. Mm-hmm. And so w- we, we may need a whole new form of communication and therefore consciousness before we can even understand what these anomalies mean. But they're there like Zen cones or like these absurd and unexplainable objects that we can never consistently explain by any one theory of them uh, just to shock us out of our place an assumption that through our rationality and powers of inquiry and technological ability to record things that we can completely get to the bottom of it. All right. All right, look, uh, we've got a few more minutes left. My uh, my cohort, Ruth, who normally does the program after me, is not here yet. That means I can go over a little bit. So let me say something that I wasn't going to think that I was going to be able to fit in, but uh, you mentioned Chardin before, Teilhard uh, de Chardin. He had a quote that I pulled up. This is one of my favorites. And uh, he said, Someday, after we have mastered the wind, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love. Then, for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. I'd like you to talk about love and how you think that fits into this whole matrix. Well, um, one way that it fits in, I wrote something that's... uh last year that's on the website called Lessons for an Entity Incarnating as a Mammal, is that um, from the point it. of view of, of dynamic paradoxicalism, there are, are two two of the great variables that are like in a, a kind of tense uh, polarity with each other, um, are oneness and eachness. Okay, and oneness, love is part of oneness. It's part of the breakdown of subject and object and of... Um, realizing that, you know, you can see that even in words. Like, for example, if someone says, um, uh, if you'll excuse the, the phrase, I screwed Jane. You notice you have a separate subject and object. The subject is, you know, has got a verb performing something on this object uh-huh, uh-huh. as compared to the sentence, we made love. Mm-hmm. So we, we go from eachness to oneness. We go from what Martin Buber called the I-it relationship to the I-thou relationship. Yes, yes. That's a lot of what, what um, love is about. Mm. However, uh, in order for love to have a certain magic and spark, it needs a separation as well. So, for example, I just dropped the phone. Are you still there? I'm here. Okay, great. So, for example, in the statement, find the others, we see both the implicit in that um, an intense experience of oneness uh, and of eachness. So the eachness is the sense of alienation that one must go out and find the others. um, And... You know, the, the oneness is the idea that there are others and that you should go out and, and, and merge with them. And so um, w- one thing that, that I, I uh, the dynamic paradoxicalism criticizes is a desire to move toward com- 
completely and permanently to one state or the other. Mm-hmm. That's where it might take, take exception to certain forms of Buddhism that prefer oneness over eachness. It would also take exception with the egocentric, or the most extreme would be like the Antichrist, you know, the, the one, you know, person who's exclusively looking out for number one and doesn't care about anybody else and would like to conquer the whole world. Um, neither of these extremes is very uh, developmental, but we need the complex interplay. So we, just as we need love in our lives, we also needed the separation because that also the two of those variables um, working with each other creates tremendous novelty. Mm, wonderful. Well, I'll tell you what. We have uh, come to the end of our time, as we do always more, 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 more quickly than I assume that we're going to. But, Jonathan, it's been amazing, as always. I, uh, I love talking to you. It's been just uh, all over the board and every bit of it, I think, worthwhile. So. And, well, thank you so much for making the space available and, and, and making it available for so many others with the, uh, what you do every, every week of the year, apparently. And it's an awesome resource for the students who are trying to find each other. Well, I thank you for your, uh, your appreciation of what, what we're trying to do around this end. And I know there are a lot of people listening that, that sure, uh, sure like it as well. And I couldn't do it by myself, that's for sure. I'm just sort of a conduit between myself and all of you people that are doing such amazing work out there. So, anyway, let's, uh, stay in touch as always. And we'll definitely talk again, um, uh, before uh, before the end of the year, but uh, hell, uh, we didn't even talk about 2008. What do you see? Uh, just uh, finish things off here, but uh, let me know what you got in mind for the next 12 months. Well, personally, I'm working on a book called The Guide to the Perplexed Interdimensional Traveler, but also in terms of what's going on in the collective, the future is always the unknown. I definitely felt a disturbance in the force. I was getting an energy session from a very talented energy worker here in Boulder, mm-hmm. it was the day of the Iowa caucuses, and suddenly I had this feeling that like the timeline was going to shift based on what happened with the Iowa caucuses, and we, we see a real collective event of real mythological power going on, where there's a, a shift in like the temporal momentum that Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton had, and, and this is happening on many different levels, and suddenly you- somebody from another generation, not a baby boomer, is suddenly having this uh, Obama effect, they're calling it, and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, uh, I think this is going to be a very interesting process to watch in addition to all the other tense things and anxieties ratcheting up about the economy and, and so forth. Uh, things seem very charged and interesting and uneasy. <laughs> yeah, I agree fully, and I think it's going to be uh, another another interesting year to be participating in it. So we'll just hang on and uh, do our best in the middle of it and uh, talk to you another time, all right? Take care, brother. Thank you, my friend. Bye. Cheers. All right, everybody, Jonathan Zapp, once again, on the web, www.zapporacle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, zapporacle.com. Great, great stuff coming from this fella from uh, Boulder, Colorado, and I look forward to uh, more from Jonathan in the future here. Speaking of Jonathan's, uh, John Major Jenkins, who is a friend of uh, John Zapp, will be coming here to Columbia sometime in the next probably 45 days, sometime in February, I'm thinking, and we'll probably do a live show with John here in the studio. I'll have him here at the radio station with me. But I'm actually considering trying to put together a little event here in town to talk about 2012 and the Maya and all the stuff that John is so uh, astute about. And it'd be just a total waste, I think, to have John Major Jenkins here in town and not uh, be able to get some people together to listen to him talk. So maybe we'll... Uh, we'll put that together sometime in the next month and a half or so. And if you have any ideas 
about uh, that or collaborating with me to put that together, feel free. Get in touch with me. I'd appreciate it. Orbitradio at AOL.com. And, of course, you guys can figure out a way to get a hold of me if, uh, if you really need to. All right? Okay. Once again, Jonathan Zapp. Thank you so much, John. It was wonderful. He is awesome. And uh, you can check him out on the web one more time, www.zapporacle.com. My website, MikeHagan.com. This program will be up in the archives within the next 24 to 48 hours. And you can download it and share it with your friends if you weren't able to listen live or if you didn't hear the whole program. Regardless, it will be there. And I hope you uh, uh, grab it and do what you like with it, okay? All right. Next week, we are going to have Dr. Patty Taylor. We're going to talk about sex. All right. How about it? And... uh, I have to come up with some appropriate music as well. Not sure what I'm going to do next week for that, but I'm sure it'll be fun. Anyway, everybody, uh, we'll see what happens next week with uh, Dr. Patty Taylor. And I better just uh, close my trap here and get off the air. Say thanks, and we'll get back at you next week, okay? In the meantime, KOPN is always doing its thing on the radio, 89.5 FM, and uh, on the web, KOPN.org. All right, take care of yourselves, everyone. We'll talk to you next week, and uh, enjoy this last one. Here.